Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. We are in one of my absolute favorite places in the world. I got up at 5 a.m. this morning and drove into a winter storm, uh, at least a forecasted winter storm, on October the 10th. Uh, so er, winter's coming early this year, according to uh, Pheasants Forever. But uh, we are at the Terry Redland Art Center in Watertown, South Dakota. And if, if you're a frequent listener or dedicated listener to On The Wing podcast, you'll know that we ended up at the Terry Redland Art Center by happenstance a year ago, almost this exact time, because... Of similar weather. I was just going to say, same right thing. <laughs> I don't know. We might need to stop, not stop coming, but figure a warmer time of year to do it. Well, as long as we end up at the Terry Redland Arts Center, I'm okay with it. It's all good. Uh, episode 5, we recorded uh, the voices you've heard so far. Matt Morlock, the state coordinator for South Dakota. Erica Yost, uh, you just heard a peep out of Erica so far. <laughs> a regional rep for South Dakota. Welcome back. Great to be here. And in the absolute perfect attire for the day, in her blaze orange blazer, Julie Ranham, the executive director of the Terry Redland Arts Center. Thank you so much for having us back after we popped up on your doorstep a year ago unexpectedly which was a wonderful surprise and we are delighted you're back today so thanks for coming back and i've, I've got to make mention again of the blaze orange blazer because it it just fits it's it's gorgeous you, it, you you're right on brand <laughs> Well, you know, I, I did um, select this specifically for this special occasion, knowing that you folks from Pheasants Forever were, would be here today. And um, so I'm glad you like it. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, Matt, do you think that would be legal in the field? Is it blaze enough? I would say it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really reminds me of the blaze orange blazer that you wear it's, it's, at Pheasant It's Fest similar, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I told you I got to figure out where she got that so I can buy one for Meredith. That would be so good. So we, we could be, you know, blaze orange couple. Right, right. Um, I, I can see the headlines now. Yeah, so I like I've, it. I've got some inter- internet searching to do when I get home. <laughs> I'll scout some. I'll scout some sites for you too, and send you some links if I find something. <laughs> well, uh, and she could just borrow this suit too, but I may never get it back. <laughs> you might not. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's too perfect. Well, thank you for thank dressing you. up, and thank you for hosting us. Um, it, it absolutely was a, a blast to be here a year ago, Thank and you. I'm delighted to be back. And we're back for a very special couple of reasons. Um, there is, we're going we're gonna to talk at length about um, a piece of artwork that returned home. Yes. Country Road. Yes. Uh, Terry Redland Original. So we'll talk about that. And we'll also talk um, with Erica and Jake, um, the brand new chapter of Pheasants Forever that was started here in Watertown recently. Um, And if folks are listening, they're probably excited about the upcoming bird hunting season. And why wouldn't you be? Because uh, we're in the pheasant capital of the country. Yeah. Uh, so we'll be talking about the uh, South Dakota 2019 pheasant hunting season as well on this episode. 
along with uh, some tips and uh, tricks and how-to from a couple of locals on where to find birds in this big state. Um, some been, spots, not all our spots, you know, well, some spots. Just one a piece. <laughs> yep. Just one a piece. So we've got a lot on tap, um, but we're going to start based on our location, the Terry Redland Art Center. Um, and let, let's talk a little bit about Terry Redland. You know, we, we, we mentioned some of his history in, in that podcast a year ago, but right. we've got a lot more listeners than we did a year ago. And, and Terry Redland was such a major contributor to conservation in this country. Let, let's go down that road of how Terry got started as a painter because it wasn't a, you know, he didn't wake up as a five-year-old, you know, as a savant right. with a, right, with, right, with, right. with a, a paintbrush in his hand. He, he ended up to be, uh, you know, I don't think there's any question. He's America's most beloved wildlife artist. And he ended up in that, with that distinction in a really odd sort of pathway. It was. It was very, um, very unique. Terry was born and raised right here in Watertown, South Dakota. And when he was uh, walking to his after-school job at the movie theater at the age of 15, his buddy came by on a motorcycle. And Terry flagged him down and begged for a ride. And he said he wanted to go back to school the next day and tell all his buddies he was on a Harley Davidson. Mm. And the kid said, well, I'm really not supposed to give anybody a ride, Terry. I, I told my dad I'd only use the motorcycle to make deliveries for him. And Terry just wore him down and said, oh, come on, what could happen? We can see the theater from here. Let me just hop on and have a quick ride. And they'd gone only one block when a drunk driver ran through a stop sign and hit that motorcycle. Holy cow. I know. And... Terry lost a leg as a result of that accident. And during his recovery period and his recuperation, Terry and his mother were visited by representatives from the state of South Dakota who told them of a scholarship program available to students with disabilities. And through that program, Terry was awarded a $1,500 scholarship. Had it not been for that scholarship, Terry's family never would have been able to afford to send him on to yeah. college. Terry decided at that point to pursue his interest in art. He thought that would be less physically challenging, and he'd had an interest in art, and he went on to art school, and he began his career as a commercial artist after graduating with a design and commercial art degree, spent the first 20 years of his career in the world of commercial art, and it wasn't until 1977, hmm. at the age of 40, that he launched himself into the world of wildlife art, and his art took off. People loved it. And through partnerships like those with conservation organizations and with the Farmer Magazine, mm -hmm. lots of folks remember that, his art was featured in places where people who could appreciate it found it. And his career took off. In fact, it took off so well that by 1984, Terry's son Charles convinced him to stop selling his original oil paintings so that one day a building could be built to share mm. them with the rest of the world. And Terry said, well, the only place that building should go is back home to Watertown, South Dakota, to repay my hometown and my home state for that scholarship. Because mm. had that not happened, none of this would have been possible. So this place that we're enjoying today, this beautiful place, is all his gift back to his hometown, his thank you gift. Wow. Yeah. Because you come down the highway here, and you expect, like most South Dakota towns, relatively rural, small-town America, and you, you enter in the city limits of Watertown, and boom! It, this is a magnificent building, and it's not... It, it, it fits the setting, too, right? Because it's up on this hill with there's a little 
um, a pond in front and and you guys host weddings here it's just a beautiful setting but it is startlingly beautifully different than the rest of town it is a bit unexpected i think out here on the south dakota prairie and it's not necessarily the style of a building that you would expect to find the art of terry redland it's not that rustic cabin Mm -hmm. or lodge look but terry's son charles wanted it to look permanent like it had always been here and like it would always be here and i think that was the impetus for the design and the grounds that you mentioned it sits on a 30 acre piece of property with over one mile of walking trails and picnic gazebos and um, Terry designed the park so that he could invite visitors to Mm. enjoy nature the way he did. How many weddings do you guys have here a year? Oh, gosh. You know, it varies quite a bit, but I would say probably 12 to 15. Okay. And um, some just ceremonies, some receptions, some that folks just come out and take their photos here on the property. And um, so it's just, it's it's one of those things that was never part of the plan, but mm-hmm. it's a, a wonderful um wonderful thing that's happened yeah it's a beautiful setting thank you uh you you talk about terry with such genuine appreciation that you knew terry pretty well i did i have been blessed to work here for the redland family and specifically for terry redland since 1996 i was hired in april of 1996 the building was still under construction and um and i was able to be part of the team that actually placed the original art and worked with terry on selecting the lighting and all of the Mm. finishing touches and uh just he he is was the kind of person you would imagine for those that didn't know him. He was just humble and kind and genuine, and I never heard him speak a harsh word, and he was exactly the kind of person you would think would paint the beautiful paintings that we see here. It's somewhat odd, though, right? Because you think about artists, at least I think about artists, and I think extreme right <laughs> you, you know they just drink until three in the morning and just have these ragers of parties right even mm-hmm. even some of the wildlife folks that i know <laughs> yeah. they're, they're just they, you know they need to have a mo- few more v8s uh-huh. right, they're, right. They, 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 just, they just walk to a different beat but when you think about terry you know you do think well that that's kind of like my grandpa yeah Right. And very all American, just bread and butter, mom and apple pie. Like Absolutely. Hometown boy, loved being back in Watertown, worked his whole life to come home to Watertown. Always had a desire and a dream to come back here. Didn't get back here until 1996 when the art center was under construction, Hmm. um, but spoke of his childhood here as being idyllic. Hmm. Yet they had no money. I mean, the times were tough. But he said he had friends, he had family, he could hunt, he could fish, he could enjoy the great outdoors. To him, it was perfect, and he wanted to come back to that. So what you talk about being an eccentric artist, I never saw any of that with Terry Redland. And I think part of that was his roots Mm. and also because of his training. He was trained as a commercial artist, and he was uh, the kind of artist that said, Julie, I'm never the kind of artist that waits for inspiration. I get up every day and go to the easel and paint because that's what I was trained to do. Because mm. he, he had to deal with customers in the commercial world. So right. he, there was a different level of customer service than maybe most artists need to worry about. Well, and for him, it was he had to produce. In the mm-hmm. commercial art world, uh, they were on deadline and they mm-hmm. had to produce. And, and so I think because of that training, he approached the rest of his career as an independent artist the same way. Hmm. 
Did he ever talk about his process? I mean, you talked about uh, you started uh, like he wakes up every morning and got to produce. Yeah. But where did that, um, you know, when, when you look around from geese to rough grouse to whitetails to pheasants, like, how do you know what he was going to start painting that morning? And what, you know, did he snap a photo of a sunset and like, okay, this is what my next one's going to be? What was his process? So we have an enormous library of Terry Redland's personal photographs. Hmm. And he didn't necessarily take photographs to duplicate what was in the photo. He took them as reference material photos. He used only his own reference material. And he took photos also to remind him of things he wanted to incorporate into paintings, Mm. different structures, things like that. Um, But he would start with a sketch. And we have some of the pencil sketches here in the gallery. He would sketch out his concepts. And oftentimes, those sketches would end up being multiple layers of translucent paper or vellum. And he would Mm. develop the scene by adding layers to this working sketch and then once he felt that he had it formulated well enough he would move to board and then he would paint hmm. he seems when when you look at this and it, it it's a credit to how talented he was it seems like it's supernatural and everything is authentic even from a biologist perspective like uh, there, there are tremendous artists out there like i think about les cuba right great artist <laughs> mm-hmm. but yep. when you look at les's work um you know, I've never seen a pheasant the size of a tractor before sometimes, right? right? There, there are some things that are just disproportionate, and that's his signature, and it's unique and beautiful in its own way. But Terry, I have to believe from a biologist's perspective, I'm looking at Erica shaking her head ve- vehemently, like, let me talk. <laughs> no. Um, his, his representation of nature is just spot on. It really puts you out there in the field. It's amazing to learn that he didn't start doing wildlife art until he was 40 because you look at his paintings and it really puts you out there. It's incredibly realistic. But he lived it. He was a hunter. He was a fisherman. He he was in the field. He painted what he knew. He grew up Mm. in the prairies of South Dakota, hunting the prairies of South Dakota. And um, I think that that it was so much a part of him. And you can't take away just an incredible gift. He mm-hmm. just had an incredible gift. You talk about perspective, I think, is what you're getting at when you talk about the size of the birds. Right, right. Terry w- had, was a master of perspective. And he would credit some of that to his training in that commercial art world. Part of his career, he spent as an architectural renderer. Mm. And he didn't love that job, but he said it taught him perspective Mm. better than anything else he had ever done. It was a wonderful training for him. But his son, Charles, told me a fascinating story one day. He said he talked to his dad one day, and, and Terry could walk in a room, having never been in it before, and he could stand in one corner of the room, but he could paint it as if he had been standing in the opposite corner hmm. without hmm. ever going to that corner. Hmm. He just had that kind of ability. And I think that is partially what sets him apart in some regard. Was he a, do you know if he was a good student no. uh, academically? <laughs> he was not a good is student. Is that right? No. In fact, oh. I'm so glad you asked that question because in 1998, the Sioux Falls School District called. They had They were going to build a new elementary school and they had taken a vote of all of the parents students and teachers and asked them what they wanted to name the new school and they had chosen terry's name and my job was to call terry and ask his permission and i called and told him what was happening 
and it was just silent on the other end of the (laughs) (laughs) and I finally I had to say Terry are you there and he said Julie do they know what kind of student I was? <laughs> and um, so he was very self-conscious of that. In fact, he told stories that his teachers had a nickname for him. They called him Windows Redlin. They knew right. they couldn't put him anywhere near a window or he would daydream the day away. Um, so he was kind of self-conscious about that, but I think he made up for it. Oh, there's no doubt about it. When you talk about his all of his work, did he have a favorite... Um, uh, so I do definitely want to ask if he had a favorite piece, but did he have a favorite type of wildlife that, because um, you always associate, I always associate him with ducks and Ducks Unlimited, and there's such a long history with Waterfall and the work he did to um, really help Ducks Unlimited raise millions of dollars for wetland habitat. Is that... Is, was that his favorite because of uh, that connection, or was there, was there another bird that rose to the top for him? Well, I, I feel like I'm going to um, have kind of a dangerous answer here, <laughs> <laughs> but actually deer. Is yeah. that right? Deer were his favorite. Oh, and why mm-hmm. is that? Um, he doesn't know anything more beautiful than a deer. That's huh. what his quote was, and, and, and if it, I, I mean... He says it in one of the DVDs that we share here at the Redland Arts Center. He said, I don't know anybody who wouldn't love a deer. They're so beautiful. And so he said, they're my favorite. So I can't really That's tell you a lie, right? Yeah, I yeah, have No, <laughs> this is a safe place. Thank We're you. Good. Thank you. So, yeah, he, he loved deer. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what was his favorite piece? Well, and I, I think that um, he loved all of the pieces that he created, sure. but he often would talk about one called Lights of Home. Lights of Home is a big Victorian-style home on a hill, all lit up. All the lights are on in the house, and there's a collie sitting at the end of the driveway. It's a beautiful, beautiful evening scene in the winter, and Terry said that painting reminded him of his childhood, and he was taught at a very young age, you never left the room without turning out the light. The only time all the lights were on in the house was when company was coming. Hmm. And in this scene, all the lights are on in the house, and even the family dog knows that guests will soon arrive, and the dog is waiting at the end of the driveway. And so I think more than anything, it was a fond memory for him of his childhood, as are so many, but that's the one he started every tour with, and that's the story he often told. Hmm. When you do walk around here, and and we... um we had to check out Country Road before we, we got on the podcast, which we're, we're going to get to in a minute. But as you do walk around the museum, light, in addition to the wildlife and the perspective, right, and the, the representation of nature, it is startling. It's arresting how much of a mastery was at capturing light through painting. When I look at that, it does look... There's a photographic quality to it, but you can tell that it's a painting, right? right? But what I don't understand, like I have a hard time intellectually conceptualizing how he did it, is capture light through paint. Yeah. I, I And I know some of it, you know, at museums, right? You guys play with light, right? Right. But even you go in the um, the gift shop. Right. Where not every painting has a spotlight on right. it. You look at the prints and you're like, that's unbelievable. Right. How did he do that? 
So first I'm going to tell you that when you when you mentioned that they're almost photographic, Terry would say to you that his style he called romantic realism. Okay. So I think that's a wonderful description because it does look so real, but he takes out everything we don't want to see, right? And only puts in the scene what we want to see. Mm-hmm. When you talk about his light, you know, he painted with only three colors, cyan, magenta, and yellow. And he mixed all the colors of the spectrum mm. from that, from those three colors. Really? Now, an artist does not consider white a color. So when he would capture that light, it was through contrast, through this through the brightest white hmm. and then the um, other colors that are in the scene. Um, but yeah, he was an absolute master. And I'll just tell you, we we do play with light. <laughs> but <laughs> Secret is out. <laughs> well, but yeah. even without the lights on these paintings, they still glow. Oh, yeah. They still glow. Yeah, and I, I don't remember the exact one that caught my attention. It was, um, it was two grouse flying over a pathway. Mm-hmm. And Breaking cover. Breaking cover mm-hmm. and the light down that pathway is like unbelievable how mm-hmm. accurate that was and just it, it just stops you in your tracks and you know if if you come to the museum which is free admission by the way and we're going to invite all pheasant hunters during the duration of the season to come through um, it, it plan to spend a little time here yeah. it, it is absolutely worth your time so le- you. let's talk about the museum it, it, as i mentioned it, it is free right um open all season long open all year long right? yes yes open all year long and through december 31st open seven days a week um now we're closed sundays after you know from january through march but otherwise yeah we're here admission is free and 165 of terry redland's original oil paintings are on display Right. And uh, it's self-guided. So if you're if you're worried about coming in because you don't want to have to get on a guided tour or anything like that, the beauty of the art of Terry Redlin is you don't need a guide. Mm-hmm. It's self-explanatory. And uh, you wander through and enjoy the pieces that kind of call to you. 165 originals. Yes. How, how many did he paint? 210. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you got to, I mean, the vast majority of his originals are under this roof. They are. And we're still missing a few that are in the hands of private collectors because from 1977 through 1984, Terry was selling his original oil paintings. That's part of how he was earning a living and supporting his family. Hmm. And until his son convinced him to stop selling those originals, you know, that was just part of his plan. So... Over the course of this uh, art center's existence, we have acquired 25 of those earlier pieces that were in the hands of private collectors. We're not actively searching for them. We don't. Uh, we don't have a fund set aside to pay for them. But through unique and kind of um, rare circumstances, some of them have come home. So you said 25 since the the center's open, right. and I think you mentioned before we turned on the recording equipment that 15 of them come came here in one kind of circumstance with terry's son yes we um terry's son charles was made aware of of a collector who unfortunately passed away and he owned 15 of terry's originals and um he owned quite a lot of other art as well and his wife was auctioning off his art collection and so charles redland went to the auction as an anonymous bidder and didn't tell Terry he was going and he bought back all 15. Wow. And um, 
And so that Terry was not necessarily thrilled with that. He did not believe in um, buying back his art. He just felt um, that it wasn't necessary. But over time, he realized that those early paintings do add to the story that we're trying to tell here when we talk about Terry Redland's life and his career. And how many kids did Terry have? Three. Uh, Two girls, Kimberly, Kelly, and then um, his youngest and only son, Charles. And are they all still alive? Yes. Are they in the Watertown area? Um, Two of the three have homes here, and they spend summers here. And um, surprise, surprise, they winter elsewhere. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with the winter storm coming on October October 10th, it's hard to blame them. Right, (laughs) right. How often do they visit the, the art center? You know, it's... It kind of uh, is in spurts, you know, there. I think that now the Art Center, as you might imagine as a family member, this place is filled with an awful lot of memories. Sure. And I think sometimes that would be a hard thing to um, experience, um, you know, as a a loved one. So they're maybe not here quite as much anymore, um, but they certainly are 100% supportive of this and... um, it's their gift as well, because look at the resources that went into mm-hmm. the construction of this. And um, and so, you know, this this is part of their inheritance, really. Yeah. So we're so grateful to all of them for this beautiful gift. Yeah. Thank you. Right. Because right. on behalf of all of us, it's um, it is a place that's just beautiful. Yeah. Um, it, you, you really see the depth of Terry's work and, and how much he meant and the legacy he's left. Right. Um, when you st- when you talk about 165 originals, that number went up recently from 164 to 165. It did. Tell us about Country Road and, and the story behind the 165th original oh. underneath this roof. We are so thrilled. We are so thrilled to have Country Road back home. I call it home because I just feel like all the originals belong here. Um, but Country Road was sold in 19, was painted in 1980 and sold shortly thereafter by Terry Redlin to a private collector because, of course, that was during a time when Terry never had any plans for this building. And um, it's been in the hands of a private collector ever since. And as I mentioned, we don't actively search for those originals that were sold, but this was a unique situation. Um, A fan of Terry's art made us aware that this painting was going to be coming up on an auction. Hmm. And um, we don't have a bottomless pit of money here. The Art Center is set up as a a nonprofit foundation. So sometimes, you know, those originals, when they do become available, are are well out of our reach financially. Um, This just happened to be a really unique situation, and we were lucky enough to be the lucky bidder so it came back to the art center and is now on display front and center in the main gallery um of course as a tribute to all those that are coming into our beautiful state for pheasant hunting and um it's kind of a classic terry redland scene wouldn't you agree oh it it absolutely is because it's got all the markings of you'd expect out of terry like like we've talked about the light is spot on perfect there's a little wetland off to the left-hand side, right? There's a gravel two-track dirt road where you can, I mean, you can see the pebbles of that road where, you know, it's kind of that quintessential South Dakota, like, rocky 
dirt. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> You're shaking your head like, oh, yeah, I drove on a bunch of them to get here. Right? <laughs> and, and then the roosters are just uh, like lifted out of a photograph. They, they look exactly like you'd expect. Well, come October 19th-ish, about 1201, <laughs> <laughs> <right>? <laughs> <laughs> trying to escape from a, a couple of bird dogs. It's yeah. just, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous painting. And it does appear that who the collector that you said um, uh, had it, had it in bubble wrap, hidden away in a basement, kind of like the Honus Wagner, Wagner baseball card. Yes. Right? It, there's not a scratch on this. No, it is absolutely in pristine condition. It's like brand new. And um, we're so grateful to whomever had it to, to take such beautiful care of it. And we're so pleased to be able to share it with everybody again. I think the prints are beautiful, and, and many people own Country Road print, limited mm-hmm. edition print. There's something about the original that mm. just can't be duplicated. Yeah, that, that it's one of the few originals, you know, that I've seen in person. Outside of this, you know, th- right. you have some here, but actually walking in and saying, oh, wow, like Terry's brush right. touched that, you right. know. Right. And that's a pretty amazing thing. And then you think about how, as you describe him, kind of a normal guy, mm-hmm. but when he grabbed a paintbrush... It was supernatural. Absolutely. Just unbelievable talent. Yeah. Artist Terry Redland talks about his painting, Country Road. Country Road, that's a very, anybody who's ever hunted pheasants, that's a very typical late in the, uh, in, uh, in the evening scene where you've had showers through the day off and on and everything is kind of wet. Uh, you, can, you can see a big slough way in the background. And the uh, the old muddy road uh, still has water on the bottoms, which every pheasant hunter will remember the fun of trying to get through some of those areas. Pheasants can move over it a lot easier than the old car can. But uh, yeah, that's that's one that uh, I enjoy doing because it's so typical of the the open prairie areas where the pheasants are, and I like it real well. The Redland Arts Center, Watertown, South Dakota. have a really fun promotion yeah. tied to Country Road to, you know, lure all those hunters who are going to be in town and they can't hunt until noon. Right. Um, what can they do before the hunting opener? Well, absolutely come and see the Redland Arts Center for those hunters who are staying in one of the Watertown hotels or an area lodge or you're just buying your hunting license here. Um, we have distributed some fabulous coupons throughout all of those lodges and attractions and um, we're giving them to hunters to come in and redeem that coupon for a complimentary unframed copy of Country Road. And um, the only way to get an unframed copy, compliments of the Redland Arts Center, is to provide us with that coupon and to show us a valid South Dakota pheasant hunting Mm. license. And uh, it's just a wonderful way for us to thank hunters for coming in to South Dakota and especially to for coming into the Watertown area. And it is selfishly an opportunity for us to see these folks face-to-face and be able to introduce them to this place. Well, you said the key word there, right? It's free. So it's free admission. And I I, I still find it unbelievable, though. All you got to do is show the coupon in your pheasant hunting license for South Dakota, and you get a free 
Terry Redland print right. of Country Road. Right. Free. Right. You're sure. You're I'm sure you want to do this. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, it's free. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm sure. a Terry Redland print for free if yes. you stop in at the Terry Redland Art Center. And it's a print that does have the Redland Art Center logo on it, and it does say Watertown, South Dakota. So it's it's only available here. So it's truly a South Dakota keepsake. You know, it really is something that we want folks to come and collect as a souvenir of their South Dakota experience. So, um, yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> and if, so, if somebody wants to take it home and framed instead of unframed, we can make that happen, too, that with for a small fee. But, um, yes, we just want folks to come in and experience this this art even the framed version is really affordable right i mean isn't it 35 dollars? 35 dollars you can take it home framed and ready to hang on your wall that's crazy affordable and it's a nice frame don't you think Mm -hmm. the print you know what makes it obviously is the print right right and and the print is free you know (laughs) i i'm just staggered that you you know you can do that but that so let's invite all pheasant hunters coming out um it's the whole first week doesn't you can't hunt till noon the entire first week right correct yep like the entire first week people you can't hunt until noon you have nothing better what else you like okay yeah we know you're gonna be hung over for (laughs) one day (laughs) right but till noon and what time do you open we open at nine 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 Um. till noon How late are you open in we're, the day? We're open till 5. Okay, 9 So to 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. We are here from 10 to 4 on Saturday and 12 to 4 on Sunday. Okay. Well, I can't thank you enough for thank having you. us back here. I am going to put you on the spot. Okay. Because I prepared some trivia questions. Um, and you already, you already answered one of them. I think this is the stump the director. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's have fun with the okay. director. Okay. And, and you're going to nail... I, I'm sure you're going to nail most of these very easily, but I have six questions of okay. trivia for okay. you. Okay. Uh, the Redland Arts Center was built in what year? Well, it broke ground in 95. Construction happened in 95, 96, and we opened in 97. <laughs> you're not going to phase her. I know. I know. I'm not going to phase her. But this one I found really interesting. What was Terry Redland's middle name? Oh, I love this Do one. Do you guys know? Well, I have no, no clue. Okay, so I've got this one, and I've got a story for you. Awesome. <laughs> His middle name was Avon. Yeah. And when he talked about it, he said, Julie, now come on. Do you think my mom truly wanted a boy? I think she wanted a girl. She named me <laughs> Terry Avon Redlin. And he just joked about <laughs> it. And, yeah, so that's his middle name, A-V-O-N. Yes. That, that was, I don't know any other Avon. No, nor do I. Um, what profession... Did Terry Redland hope for a career when he was a teenager? So he wanted to be a forest ranger or a conservationist. He wanted to work outdoors. She's nailing all these. I should have opened this up to you guys. I would have failed miserably. um, Okay, next question. How much fundraising revenue does Ducks Unlimited attribute to Terry Redland over the career of his artwork, over well, art of, over his career. And this is kind of a hard one because we're still working with conservation Great organizations. Point. And so those funds are still, his art is still helping um, folks in conservation. Um, I think the number that has been publicized is $28 million. 
You're right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so I I think that's low, to be honest with you. I think that, I mean, that's what I found just attributed to Ducks Unlimited alone. Mm -hmm. That doesn't even address Pheasants Forever and, you know, some of the South Dakota charities and Nature Conservancy. And again, 28 million Ducks Unlimited alone. Yeah. It's staggering. And one of the questions I had for you is what's Terry Redland's legacy? And the answer to that is sort of obvious. It's out there on the landscape everywhere. I mean, he's got a legacy as a wildlife artist, Mm -hmm. right? Probably, well, not probably, undoubtedly the greatest wildlife artist of our generation. But what's more staggering than that legacy, his art legacy, is the habitat out on the landscape. Yep. It's, yeah. it, I mean, I know I'm in the art center, and I'm pra- right. that's probably blasphemy to say <laughs> that he was, he, his legacy is more on the ground conservation. But that's true. It's, right. it, that's a bigger impact than his impact in the art world, and that was staggering. I, I absolutely love that you said that because I agree with you, and, and no matter where we were sitting, I would agree with you. Um, this place is a beautiful gift, and it's an amazing um tribute to him but what he worked on his entire life and career was to give back and um i think that would be what he would want his legacy to be yeah well his kids and his family should be proud because that's that has come true yeah um one of the other questions i had was uh, the, the Terry Redland Elementary School opened in 1998 in his honor. In what town is that school located? And you answered that already, <laughs> Sioux Falls, which is fine. But you mentioned something, uh, Matt, earlier before we uh, turned on re- the recording, that there is a Terry Redland um, State Wildlife Area. Yep. And I didn't have that in my notes, so tell me about that. So they're out west of Watertown, about 13 miles, I think it is, um, Long, it used to be part of Long Lake GPA, game production area. Mm-hmm. Um, they rededicated that to Terry Redland game production area, and it's, it's a, it's, I'm trying to think of the size of it. It's over a section in size. It's wow. A, and it hooks onto a larger complex. There's about three to 4,000 acres of public hunting area that are tied together there. Um, and, a, and a, the anchor of it, the first one you come to is the Terry Redland hmm. GPA. And wetlands, grasslands? Name it all. It, it's all there. It's, and I actually got to spend a lot of my Growing up, I worked where my dad worked for game fishing parks. I was out in the country all the time. And that's one of the game producers we always went to. Huh. Um, there's perfect deer habitat, awesome pheasant habitat, duck hunting. I duck hunted it a lot as a kid, um, that area, but it's just a gorgeous site. Huh. Have you hunted it, Erica? I haven't. I haven't gotten over there. Me neither, but we should uh, figure out a, a time well, to meet up because I can be your tour guide. Mu- <laughs> it's a deal. It's a deal. Yeah, it's a, it's a great place. It's I haven't been there in a few years, but I said I spent a lot of time there as a kid and huh. know it well. I know pretty much every inch of it. H- how old is it? How how long has it been public land? You're really testing. Sorry, my <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's been since you um, were a kid, so it's at least twenty years, right? At least twenty years. It was a, I would say early '90s that the, the piece was prop the property was purchased, um, and then it became the Terry Redland GPA. I think late 90s it started out as yep. under a different just part of the long lake complex okay um then they broke that little piece that not little piece it's a big piece but they broke that piece off um very neat. i'd say late 90s early 2000s that it became the terry redland gpa so does the uh, the painting country road look like it could have occurred there we were actually talking about that 
Um, you know, whenever you see a Terry Pincher, especially growing up in Watertown, you always look at the scene and you're like, I think I know where that's at. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one looks almost identical to the, the road's flooded now, imagine that. But there's a trail that came in from the south to that game production area, and it looks like the old building site that used to be on the farm there. And hmm. It really looks like you're going into that game production area. It's kind of eerie. Kind of eerie and fun Neat. at the same time. Neat. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll invite folks one more time. Um, the Terry Redland Art Center open all hunting season, uh, 9 a.m. to 5. Um, it's, it, tell us about the promotion for Country Road one more time before we... Yes. Pick up your coupon um, at one of the hotels or lodges or gas station, wherever you're purchasing your hunting license, and uh, come on in with just that coupon and your South Dakota license, hunting license, and we would love to share a beautiful copy of Country Road with you as a little thank you for coming to our beautiful state. Awesome. Free admission, folks. Come on in. Tell uh, tell Julie you heard it. Uh, heard about it on on the wing podcast, and you got plenty of time while you're here before you uh, uncase that shotgun and release the the bird dogs. Julie, thank you so thank much you. for hosting us again. Thank it's you. A beautiful place, and we even have a live studio audience. I know. Make some noise, folks. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little bit of a delayed reaction there. <laughs> Got to wake them up first. Well, let, let's wake them up and get them excited about the 2019 South Dakota pheasant hunting season. And we've got uh, two of our biologists. You've already heard a little bit about uh, from them during this podcast. Matt Morlock and Erica Yost, thanks for joining me again for year number two at the Terry Redland Art Center to talk about the upcoming bird season. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So, so you're, you're using the term biologist loosely with me. Oh, I, really? I don't, I don't get to do that anymore. I'm, <laughs> yeah, me I'm too. A, I'm a pencil I mean. pusher now. So, <laughs> well, I I play one on uh, on the radio like right. once a week. So, <laughs> yeah, that's I get to play one occasionally. But <laughs> it's been wet this year. Yes. yes. So that that's kind of the theme. It's been wet. It was a li- long winter, but. Um, Give us a, a forecast, uh, a prognosis for the coming season that's uh, set to open for non-residents on October 19th. Absolutely. So I think it would help to start with just a little bit of history of where we were at last year. Yeah. And so, you know, last year, hunters in the state of South Dakota harvested a little over 950,000 roosters, just over 950,000. And we'd love for that number to be one and a half million. Um And like you alluded to, we had a pretty crazy weather year here in the state. But there's a good light at the end of the tunnel, I think. Um, I mean, it was the fourth snowiest winter that we've ever had. A lot of the pheasant range had double the snowfall that it would normally have. So just crazy winter. Um, Just anecdotally, you know, after a lot of that snow melted, I saw a lot of birds getting out and feeding. Um, Yeah, so really what made the difference for the winter was the good winter habitat that we have out there. It continued into spring. We have an, we had an like record rainfall spring. Um, pretty crazy. From May to July, it was the fifth highest rainfall that we've had since 1993. Um, but some, some good things accompanied that rain. Um, there was a lot of fields that didn't get planted, um, which aren't good for some things, but it meant a lot of good weedy cover out there. It also meant there was ample moisture for habitat, for bugs, for brooding. It meant a lot of really good things for broods, the chicks out there on the ground. And we saw a lot of different 
ages of chicks out there. So it means that they successfully re-nested. Right. That was going to be my assumption that, yeah. you know, we, we had that, that snowstorm the week of tax day, right? Or yep. right before mm-hmm. it, yep. which, uh, you know, based on everything I've read about pheasant biology, that's kind of the time where pheasants start initiating nests. Yeah. Yep. And then all of a sudden, we got a foot of snow. Uh, I don't know very many hen pheasants that are going to initiate <laughs> nests when there is a foot of snow, right? right. So, no. so my assumption is that it starts pushing back nesting season. And as you start pushing them back, you know, pheasants have that high propensity to re-nest, right? So maybe yeah. they've dropped an egg or two, snow happens, well, that nest is over. Yep. They're going to try again. But generally speaking, right, that first, if, if they get in early springtime, right when, you know, the biological clock says drop your nest, they can drop 11 to 13 eggs, yep. right? And right. more eggs mean more chicks, mean more birds. But as snow turns into rain and cold and it keeps pushing it back, that second nest goes down to maybe seven to nine. Yep, a yeah. few less. And then the third nest goes maybe f- three to five, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. it, it doesn't take a biologist or a mathematician, right, to figure out, well, the longer the winter, the more um, delayed the actual spring weather, just the opportunity to add more birds into the population gets harder and harder. And that's what you're seeing is you're seeing a lot of different sized birds. Yeah, they kind of made the best of it and re-nested, and they had some successful re-nests because we're seeing all those different age classes of broods out there. Yeah, the other thing, it seems like high survivability, even those late broods, you guys are still seeing five, six chicks with them. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of loss in those broods. Yeah. Um, and I think that goes back to, like Eric was saying, there's a lot of preventive plant acres and stuff like that, a lot of weedy habitat, just optimal brood habitat. Um, that was the one benefit this wet year was we had a lot of optimal brood habitat. And I think we saw that in the survivability of the chicks. I think we had a lot higher survivability than normal. Hmm. Are you seeing a lot of um, puffballs, like the, the ones that, you know, that were probably born in – let's say late August and, and you know, they don't even think about having yeah. colors yet. Right. Yeah. They just learn yeah. to fly. Yeah. Are you I, seeing those? I, in spots, um, in spots where I was just talking to a friend of mine down by uh, Chamberlain in that area. And they, he called me in July in a kind of a panic, not a panic, but concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't seeing any pheasants and it, it was just really concerning to him. He's a guy that likes to have pheasants around, likes to pheasant hunt. Um, he called me about three weeks ago, just excited, excited. He was out doing his last cutting of hay and stuff like that, and he said there's chicks everywhere. Um, we figured late August hatch. Hmm. Um, and he was talking to his neighbors, and they were saying the same thing. Um, they hadn't seen hadn't seen any chicks and stuff, and they were all really concerned. Um, and all of a sudden, we got chicks everywhere, and they're, they're like that August hatch. Um, so... That pocket, I think you're going to see a lot of it. In other areas, too, we're hearing quite a bit of reports of younger chicks. Yeah, but a lot of our chapter leaders have been saying they saw a few birds earlier, you know, in the summer, but a lot more of the younger, younger chicks. And, and Erica, your job is you, you work with chapters from border to border across the state. How many chapters are in South Dakota? 34 now with our new Watertown chapter hey. here. <laughs> whoop, whoop. <laughs> uh, so you are talking to, to volunteers from across the state 
Um, any anecdotal things where you can, not the hotspot areas, but places where you think that might be better than expected? Um, I mean, really, we've got birds across the whole eastern side of the state into the western side of, side of the state a little bit. Um, the Aberdeen area, we've heard really great things. They've got a, a lot of incredible habitat, public access up there as well. Um, but really, there's, I mean, just about anywhere that you go, you're going to find right. birds. We're it, in South Dakota. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean. it, it, it is interesting. Um, so I, I pull up the South Dakota uh, roadside counts. And so the way South Dakota Game Fish and Parks does it is not really by county, but they sort of take a community and put a, a generalization around a local area. So most folks would re- realize that um, Chamberlain, generally speaking, is going to be your highest concentration of birds per mile, right? And, and this year, that was 4.85 uh, pheasants per mile, down a little bit from last year, 5.29. So not a huge difference, but that's still number one in terms of concentration. Um, Pier, which is somewhat surprising to me, I guess I always equate pier with sharp tails and chickens just Mm -hmm. because of the grasslands, but by golly, they got a lot of pheasants around pier. Grouse grouse hunting out there, I saw a ton of birds in the thicker cover. And I did too. You know, like the places that you would go to normally to chase prairie grouse because of the moisture, they were thick. It, yeah. the grass yeah. was thick, and there were birds. I mean, you had to make sure when you pulled up on a, on a flushing bird that, okay, that's a chicken, that's a Sharpie, that's yep. not a hen. You know, they're, the, the birds in and around the pier area are pretty good. Um, so then moving, moving on, you got um, so pier at 2.9 pheasants per mile. You got Mitchell next at 2.7. Huron after that at 2.5. And then you, you mentioned Aberdeen at 1.97. And Aberdeen it has that distinction of the biggest gain. Yep. And they jumped um, almost 50% mm-hmm. bird numbers year on year. Yep. And it is attributable to they had the same hab- um, weather issues that everybody else had. But they have amazing, innovative habitat programs going on in the Aberdeen area. Absolutely. Yep. And some of those are community um, community habitat pheasant. Uh, help me out. Community based habitat and access. Yep, the Aberdeen Pheasant Coalition so for shortness. Explain explain <laughs> what that is. Um, so that's where this is something that it's been going on for a few years now. Um, the community of Aberdeen was they've always been known as a, a destination, um, but they were seeing that slip a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they had basically seen their revenue from hotel stays, restaurants, that kind of stuff, drop in half from 2007 to 2013. Um, and they got concerned about it. Um, they were really concerned about it. You know, instead of just sitting back and just saying, oh, poor is me, what are we going to do about it? They decided to do something. Um, and they went around and they all the businesses, they t- you know, there's a couple individuals, Casey Wisemantle mm-hmm. from the Aberdeen Chamber of Commerce. And Great guy and avid bird hunter. Yep, awesome guy. Um, Emmett Linehan, who works for us. He's yeah. our farm bill biologist in that area. They kind of decided to get together and do something. So they started going around to all the area businesses um, and just proposing that if you give us some money, um, we'll take $500, we'll take $5,000. We're going to put it into a pot, and then we're going to use that as an incentive to landowners that are going to enroll in the Conservation Reserve Program or some kind of habitat program. And if they'll open it up for 10 years to public hunting, we'll give them a little bit extra money. Um, and it went phenomenally. They've 
enrolled over 4,000 acres now into that program. Um, and that was just a case of the local community saying, we believe in hunting. Mm -hmm. It's important to us. It's vital to us. We're going to invest back in that. Um, it's just been phenomenal to see. And they're actually going around now, and they're going to start raising more funds to go 2.0. Um, it was so good that they spent all their money. Um, and now they're going to go back and get some more. And Mitchell is doing the same thing, right? Yep. And th there's a community in Iowa, right, that, that started uh, their own community-based pheasant uh, habitat coalition. Yep. Um, any other communities in South Dakota that are um, percolating? Yep. Then we have uh, kind of a neat deal, too. You know, you always hear, you know, for Aberdeen and Mitchell, that's bigger communities in water mm -hmm. in South Dakota. Um, a lot of communities, are, we're just too small to do it. Um, so down in the Chamberlain area. Um, the communities of Brule and Lyman County decided to get together, and there's five communities down there um, that they're they're just participating together, and they're doing it on a two-county area. Hmm. Um, it's really fun to see they've had, you know, it, that's an area that didn't have a lot of access because it's it's the mecca for pheasant hunting. So you know, a lot of people they're they're big into leased pheasant hunting. up and stuff. Well, not even leased up. They just they like to do it themselves. Got it. So okay. they, they weren't opening it up. Um, well, we've had now two GPA or two walking areas open up in that area because of this. Mm. Um, and it's kind of it's really fun to see um, that one. I, that one I really like. I mean, I love them both, all three of them. Mm -hmm. But that one where there's these communities banding together behind hunting and and what we love to do. It's just really fun to see. What are your opener traditions, Erica? What What are you going to be doing come opening day? Um, well, we have a lot of banquets <laughs> around the opener, so... So we'll invite any listener out to South Dakota uh, coming out to hunt. There's banquets all over the state the Friday and Saturday night of opening weekend. All around that weekend, absolutely. The Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday. Any night that you need something to do, we've got a banquet for you. So we got a thing for you. Yes. <laughs> PheasantsForeverEvents.org. Yes. Um, yeah. All of them, and including if you're listening outside of um, South Dakota and you're going to some other states there, if you think about states that are kind of tourist destinations or destination hunting states, Kansas, Nebraska, North Dakota, um, there are banquets associated with opening days, but none other than, um, there's no more than exists in South Dakota. Is it, Mitchell has a giant banquet uh, Saturday night. Is it Friday, Friday night, night before? Yeah. Uh, Wessington Springs it's has a big banquet. Friday night as well. Yep. well uh, what are some of the other ones? Where, do you, where are you going to be? Oh, I try to make it to as many as I can. Um, and generally, I end up hunting wherever I am. Yeah. So I get to travel <laughs> around a little bit. I don't get to create quite a tradition. But um, yeah, Thursday, the Thursday before the opener, there's one in Pier. Friday, we've got Mitchell. We've got Wessington Springs. We've got Aberdeen. Saturday, we've got Lemon, Platt, um, Chamberlain. And then the Monday, we've got Eureka. Tuesday, we've got Mowbridge. Wow. They're all over the place. So I would yeah. say 85% of our banquets are around the pheasant season. It's an exciting time. Our chapters love to get those people in there and raising money for everything that we all care about. Yeah. And when you do get free time on your own, you've got uh, Brittany, I believe, I do. right? Yes. And it, folks probably re recognize you because you were part of the Rooster Road Trip last, last year, year with your Brittany. Yes. And you hunted some of those community um, habitat 
um, areas in, we did. in the Aberdeen area. We did. Yeah, they were, it was incredible. It was, I mean, I was new to South Dakota last year, mm-hmm. come from Iowa originally, and just the number of birds we saw, it still amazes me. Um, the, just yeah. the, the incredible habitat we have, the number of birds that you see when you get out. Um, those, the thing that's neat about those sites is, you know, they have a reputation as being quality habitat really a destination for people to go to mm-hmm. yep. and it, you mentioned um uh, you've been out prairie grouse hunting a little bit too how's your prairie grouse season been good good um it's always so fun to get out grouse hunting i feel like you start walking and about the time that you are just kind of in your own head forgot mm-hmm. that you're hunting is when a huge coom <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or your dog goes on point which yeah. is what my dog does and then you get really excited but it's been good numbers have been good i've been hearing you were out there yourself i i was blown away yeah. at the number of birds because you 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 know i knew all about the long winter the wet springs and i came in with tempered expectations and just amazed at the number of prairie grouse and like you had also mentioned there's been pheasants all around um some of the places that they wouldn't you wouldn't normally expect them so you know i know that the state issued um you know their roadside count is 17 percent down year on year which is uniform with what iowa and minnesota also released all three of those um primary pheasant states 17 percent down but i'm honestly a little skeptical that i i actually think there's more birds out there than have been measured right i would say a lot of the cover we had out there that made it probably made a difference in the number of birds that we were counting but i think even though you know it says 17 percent down we can expect to see the same number of birds that we did last year or even even more i mean just anecdotally we've been seeing great bird numbers and you mentioned last year um and so we had in South Dakota, 53,000 resident hunters, 69,000 non-resident hunters. So I'll say those numbers again. 50, almost 54,000 resident pheasant hunters in the state of South Dakota and an additional 69,000 non-resident hunters harvested uh, 950,000 roosters, which is down by South Dakota standards, but it's, I mean, it's, clearly the pheasant capital of the country there's no no state that even rivals it and as you mentioned our organization's goal is to get habitat up to kind of a harvest capacity of 1.5 million roosters and we're not that far removed from that i mean honestly when you think about 07 08 those peak years uh it was a 60 year high and it rem- remind me, it was close to 3 million birds that year, wasn't it? It was over 2 million, yeah. Yeah, it was the mid-2 million, yeah, 2.5, I think, roughly, that we harvested. And I think, you know, all things considered where we're at, the habitat that we have mm-hmm. speaks to what we saw in the wintertime. And I think if we would have had a good year, we would... I think this year would have been interesting to see. Yeah, I um, think you're right. I mean, I, I know you're you're doing the biologist tempering your your words a little <laughs> bit, um, but it, you're right because we we had a really mild winter up until you know that polar vortex about mid January, mm-hmm. yep. and then the snow came after that. I, you know, when I when I got to Christmas and New Year's, I was like, ooh, we're Things are pretty good, you know. You jinxed us because it was <laughs> me. Yeah, because it was. Oh, no, I, I see. I remember it was right after it was the 
I think the 26th of December was our first snowfall. Before mm-hmm. that, it was open. Yeah. Um, which which helped us out. It was wet. I mean, we had a lot of rain during mm-hmm. that time, but it gave those birds a chance to fatten up. Um, so that also helped us with the winter. Along with the habitat, they were able to get fat going into it. It was a little later winter, um, so that kind of helped us get through some of this stuff too. Um, the birds were in, in very good condition leading into that snowstorm, and then it just has not stopped. <laughs> All right, so I want to I want to get a opener tip and then a overall tip from from each of you for pheasant hunting in South Dakota. So opener tip, we're we're on the precipice of you know the the biggest holiday of the year. <laughs> opening day in South Dakota, what would you tell somebody, you know, our hope is that folks are listening to this podcast as a soundtrack to their travels to South Dakota, <laughs> you know, for the opening day. Uh, give them a strategy for finding birds come 1201 Saturday, October the 19th. So last year, I took an easy out because I was brand new to South Dakota, and I said I needed all the tips. But now that I have a year under my belt, I feel like you're not going to let me off that easy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So early season, um, just kind of iconic advice. Um, If you can find some harvested corn, which is going to be a little harder this year, our harvest is going to be a little bit later. But if you can find good habitat next to harvested corn, that'd be my early season tip. Um, Beyond that, I'd say, you know, Get out your Onyx maps, get out your public hunting atlas, and try to find a piece where you've got to hike in a little bit that Mm. someone else isn't going to be hitting. Don't be afraid to hike in there a little bit. And then finally, um, this is more of a pitch than anything, and we've probably said it multiple times on the podcast, is if we want to have a future for the habitat and for having roosters out there, invite someone else out in the field. Um, It can be incredibly fun to see the hunt through their eyes again, to see it through a beginner's eyes and just to relive those experiences. So just for the future of roosters, for the future of wildlife and and habitat, I'd say take someone else new out. Yeah, that's a terrific perspective because even in the pheasant capital of the country, it's not you know, you, you hear those stories, oh, I got my three pheasants, you know, by 12.05. You know, that shouldn't be the measure of a successful opener, right? right? right. It, yeah, we, everybody wants to have success finding birds, but think about that bird dog doing the right thing, turning some light bulbs on, mm-hmm. and seeing seeing the hunt in nature through a new person's perspective. Absolutely. Which I've done personally myself the last couple of years brought new people out and the depth with which they perceive the entire experience makes it new for me again and that's incredibly gratifying and satisfying absolutely we've all been doing it for years but someone else comes into it maybe for a different reason or sees it a different way and it just opens up your eyes it's an incredible experience in the meal too you know that's the thing that you know I think about those birds that you get on opening day, like take the time to, you know, make an opening day meal too, yeah. you know, right. with, the, with some of those pheasants and have, have the entire group participate in that. That's, that's a super fun component of mm-hmm. the hunt. Yep. It definitely is. And that's something fishermen are good at doing shore lunches and stuff. Mm-hmm. We're not good at that. Why not <laughs> stop at the end of the day and you that's know, a good point. Get on a tailgate and get out a little grill and mm-hmm. make some food. I, that's a great point. I, I was on a grouse hunt with uh, Steve Grossman, mm-hmm. who uh, was just featured on an Orvis video that was released uh, in conjunction with Pheasants Forever and Quail mm-hmm. Forever just a couple weeks ago as he's, he guides in, in um, uh, 
uh, I think it's Dakota Prairie. It's a, it's a lodge in western South Dakota and for prairie grouse. And, but in the, his Northwoods Guiding Service, he gets out a little smoky joe yep. uh, off the tailgate and cuts up woodcock and, and grouse and has his own recipe, which he wouldn't share with me. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, treats the crew to kind of a, a you know, a shore lunch bird hunting style. Right. That's a great great suggestion yeah and that's something we've done it a few times and mm-hmm. nothing tastes better than sitting out in the field mm-hmm. and eating that it right. just seems like it adds a little flavor to it i don't oh. know what it is but it's yeah it's 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 fun to do that's right? hard-earned rooster's taste right right, there. right. your feet are still sore so yeah. you, you appreciate it more <laughs> for sure that's yep. a terrific suggestion uh what else what else would you suggest folks uh think about for opening day man yep that's something you'll learn from others mistakes people are so ready to go fired up to get out there and they hit it at right at noon um and especially now we're seeing you know more corn in the landscape that kind of stuff and they burn up their shoe leather the first couple hours um and they get frustrated they don't see stuff and they head to town Mm. don't give up that last hour that's when you really want to be out there Mm -hmm. um just don't stop either don't stop or come to terry redland art center at early in the day then head out later (laughs) don't don't get out there right at noon um, if you're worried about burning out, just show up a little bit later. That last hour, you know, those birds are coming out of the fields, and they're going to cover to roost for the night. That's when you want to be out there. Hmm. Um, opening weekends, usually, um, I'll shoot most of my birds in the last 20 minutes. Hmm. You know, I'll walk all day, but I'm not, sh- usually I'm just out for a walk around the dogs before that, in my mind even. I'm just, I'm just seeing what's going on. Um, but stay out there for that last bit and be there. That's when you're going to get pick up a lot of birds. So we, we've, we've talked about the golden hour before, right? And yep. folks that are members have read about the golden hour in, in the Pheasants Forever Journal. And you, you just mentioned, like, uh, roosters are out feeding, right, in cornfields, bean yep. fields, and then they come in to roost. Explain from a biologist's perspective what kind of habitat a hunter should be looking for to identify those, you know, golden hour properties, because it's not it's not just anywhere that no. they're going to be looking to that final hour of the day. Yep, you're looking for those those nice stands of warm season grasses, especially, but any kind of grasses that are they're not totally choked out with litter and stuff like that. You want to just you're looking for that stereotypical, really nice grassland that's kind of close within, I would say, quarter mile of you know big ag fields. Those patches of really nice warm season grass and stuff, they're going to come in there. That's where they're looking for, something comfortable for the night. Hmm. You know, kind of nice soft bed for them to go into. Um, as the year goes on, then you start looking at cattails and the thick stuff. But that first couple of weeks, th- those nice grass stands, that's where they're going to go roost. Um, a lot of times they're only flying in 100 yards from those egg fields into that grass. Um, so hunting those edges of that nice grass covering the egg fields is kind of where I target. Okay. So I'm going to come back to the, the final question for you guys, which was, um, you know, give some long-term tips for the season. And I already know what one of them is, <laughs> but we'll come back to that. But we're going to introduce into the conversation the president of the newest Pheasants Forever chapter, the Prairie Hills Pheasants Forever chapter, based right here in Watertown. Jake Hansen, welcome down the wing, Jake. It is good to be here. I am an avid, avid listener. Well, and thank I never, you. I never thought there'd be the day that I'd be able to be on the podcast. <laughs> so I'm honored. <laughs> well, it's not that big of a deal. But <laughs> I do a but lot of traveling. <laughs> I do a lot of traveling for work, and so I I listen 
to them all over and over again. I mean, do you really? Yeah, I do. Wh- yeah. What's your favorite? Well, okay, I'll be honest. My favorite, of course, is the first one that was recorded here at the Redwood Center. Yeah, that's one <laughs> of my answer. favorites. And too. actually, right. perfect. It, it was that podcast. It's a favorite, but my second one is a close. The Tom and Tina Dockin episode. Okay, Tina's but awesome. Isn't oh she? yeah, but I. Uh, that's how I got connected with Erica. Was I listened to that podcast and thought, well, I should probably reach out and and uh, snowballed from there. Awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, tell us. Um, uh, so you, you reached out to Erica, and then what happened? Yeah. Well, um, so I I didn't grow up pheasant hunting. Okay. Uh, I grew up in northern Minnesota, and so um, I spent my hunting seasons either in a, in a bow hunting stand or um, attempting to hunt rough grouse without a dog. Um, because our dogs were more, uh, family dogs and, uh, my sisters, you know, preferred the dog to stay at home, um, and waterfall hunting. And so when I moved to South Dakota in, in 2015, I said, I gotta, I gotta get into this pheasant hunting stuff. And, uh, so you could call me, um, what's that term? Adult onset, <laughs> <laughs> uh, pheasant hunter. Yeah. What town in, in Northern Minnesota? Uh, Park Rapids. Okay. Yep. I love yep. Park Rapids. Yeah, I honeymooned in that area. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, <laughs> so what brought you to South Dakota? Um, uh, so after my undergrad years, I studied biology and environmental studies, and I and I thought for sure I was going to be a conservation officer. Hmm. And then I realized CEOs have to work every hunting opener. Mm. So uh, that dream kind of went to the wayside for a little while, and I thought I have a few more hunting openers I want to participate in. Sure. So somehow I got into uh, nonprofit management of all things, huh. and uh, specifically for organizations that serve youth and, and youth with disabilities. And so it was a position um, I was offered. I was I was in the Twin Cities working for one of the park districts there, and uh, I was living south side of Minneapolis. And then I moved to South Dakota, and it was a drastic change in traffic and <laughs> and yeah. culture a little bit. Yeah. And so um. And so, yeah, and I thought, well, we got to get into this pheasant hunting stuff, and it's been kind of an obsession ever since. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what's the motivation? Y- you know, uh, you're a young guy, right? Yep. And millennials yep. get this rap for, <laughs> right? <laughs> sure, they, they get the rap yeah. for for being quote unquote slackers, yeah. not getting involved. But y- you've kind of done the exact opposite of that you're a young guy who listened to a podcast and you know threw your heart into a passion and volunteered what why uh you know what i i was raised um in a home that always taught you to live for something greater than yourself and uh to serve something greater than yourself and so that's kind of what i poured my career into and um i also quickly realized even though i am in the millennial generation with the positions that I had found myself lucky enough to serve in, um, you know, I had to get out of bed at a certain time each day mm-hmm. and I had to show up to work and I had to make some hard decisions. And, and now um, I have about uh, 75 employees that, that work for me and and somebody has to be the one that sets the standard as far as, <laughs> uh, you know, what gets done during the day. And so I think it was kind of a trial by fire mm-hmm. and learning responsibility, but also um, I've never served an organization that didn't have a mission statement that I uh, didn't believe in hmm. and poured everything I had into. So, um, yeah, so I think uh, when I heard that podcast, I thought, you know, I should get, I had just moved to Watertown. I took over another part of our organization, and, and part of that was um, the requirement to live in Watertown. And I thought, maybe there's a chapter in town. Hmm. 
And so I reached out to Erica, and she said, actually, there isn't, but uh, would you like to help start <laughs> one? <laughs> and you had him hooked. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I said, well, maybe. <laughs> uh, and I think it was, it was the Coteau Prairie chapter had their annual banquet. Yep. Um, and I said, well, how about I get involved and, and help out with that? And so that's where I um, first got involved in, in chapter life, that hmm. grassroots chapter model. Um, and uh, Erica pawned off one responsibility <laughs> at that banquet on me, and she still hasn't returned the favor. So she she has an IOU for, for a speaking part at that <laughs> banquet. <laughs> I still owe so you that. I'll do that. Um, it's not very often that I get a call from someone like Jake seeking me out. You know, sure. I really want to put Pheasants Forever in this community. Um, I could tell right off the bat when we met at that banquet that he was passionate about our mission, and I was really excited to get him involved. So really thrilled about having the chapter here and having you at the leadership. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. What's been the – I've got like 16 questions. What's been the <laughs> most uh, surprising uh, piece of being a chapter volunteer? Well, you know, I I uh I would say when I moved to Watertown, my fiance and, mo- and I moved to Watertown. We're we're in both millennials and so we thought, you know, it's a town of 20,000, you know, it's a lot easier to meet friends um in college, right? Mm-hmm. And then you, uh, you leave college or or graduate school and you get immersed in the communities and it's kind of like oh, yeah, how do you meet people, mm. you know? <laughs> and um, I've been surprised how many people that I've met just in the last few months since this chapter has gotten organized, um, individuals that I've become close friends with in a relatively short amount of time. Hmm. And it was based upon we got together and in those gatherings, exchange contact information. Now we've got p- dates planned to go pheasant hunting and their families coming over. So I think it, it's the relationships that were wow. formed that I was that were unexpected to me. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so. it, you mentioned uh, y- you got a dog now. I do. Yeah. Well, He's going to um, love this. Yeah. It's the best breed in the world. <laughs> oh, gosh. A oh, no. German short-haired pointer, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Saw that corner. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, uh, what's your pup's name? His name is Jep. J-E-P. Okay. Um, and where does that come from? Well, everybody It sounds like a Western it's sort of a name. Kind of. I don't know. You could say that or Duck Dynasty. I think there's ah, one of the brothers sure, or whatever. Sure. I just always... It's an easy uh, name to say in the field. Um, I wanted it to have a J name. Uh, I, I've had the dog before. You know, I've had my fiance, so he came first. So, <laughs> um, so it was Jake and Jep for a while. That was easy to put on a Christmas card. Uh, but uh, actually, I got, I got um, put on the German short-haired pointers because of my neighbors. They had one. And I went over there and spent some time with it. Um, and uh, they said, well, we got a short hair, and, and we got it trained by Dawkins Oak Ridge Kennels. Huh. And so I said, well, okay, great. You know, maybe I'll get into this. I found a breeder uh, in northern uh, South Dakota, and uh, I got to pick him out of the litter. And, yeah, we've been best friends ever <laughs> since. I actually <laughs> just picked him up from Dawkins from a pre-season refresher for a few days while I while I was bow hunting in Wisconsin. Wow. So, yeah. Everything came full circle for Kinda you. Kind of weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned you're an adult onset pheasant hunter. <laughs> what, um, you know, a guy growing up as a bow hunter, grouse hunter, yep. uh, what's been the hardest part of learning how to pheasant f- coming from the Northwoods, uh, pheasant hunt? Well, uh, you know, actually the hardest part was admitting to the first group I went hunting with that I had no clue what I was doing. Mm. You know, as you grow up hunting, I think all hunters have a little bit of like maybe an internal ego that we know 
we know how to hunt. Sure. You know, yeah. the way that we've been doing it is the way that it should be done. Mm-hmm. And and those endeavors besides waterfowl hunting had, had kind of been, you know, just myself and, and maybe a couple of close buddies, you know, um, in a deer stand or, or walking through the, the grouse woods, you know, sure. public lands near Park Rapids. And um, it was kind of adapting to, well, where do I stand? You know, what is a blocker? What, you know, mm, uh, yeah. and... Um, but it was that the first the first rooster I remember uh, knocking out of the sky hmm. uh, just had me hooked. Yeah. It might have been also the first hen that I almost stepped on walking through a field <laughs> that flushed and scared me half to death. But um, it was that first hunt that I thought, okay, I've found something new that I think mm. might have hooked me in for forever. And then um, that was before I got the dog. And uh, and I said, you know, i got to get a pheasant dog. And... Uh, and I had never trained a short hair before. I grew up with labs. Now I've forgotten every other breed because the only one that matters is <laughs> short hair. <laughs> and he's seriously phenomenal. I love it. I can't wait. This weekend is the resident opener yeah. here in, in South Dakota. And uh, and I've I've uh, I can't wait to get him out. So what's your strategy for the opener with Jep? Well, we were supposed to have for the organization that I serve. We were supposed to have our board meeting out in Custer, South Dakota. So I had planned a trip home. Mm across the state, this is before, you know, inclement weather, um, to meet up with Erica. Okay. So, uh, so hopefully on, um, on Sunday, uh, we'll get out. But I spent some time in the last few weeks driving and checking out different public lands. South Dakota does a great public land uh, atlas that they put out every year. Um, I use, you know, Onyx Maps and have, have marked out some spaces and places that I think are, are going to be good on that early season. Uh, hunt. Nice. So, yeah. Um, your chapter, what's coming up for your chapter? Do you have a date for maybe a banquet or a pint night? What's, what's on the horizon? Yeah. So the chapter is still in its infancy, I would say, um, as we get organized, but we meet monthly. Okay. Um, so we meet every third Tuesday of the month and we meet at a local restaurant, uh, that has donated the space for us to meet. And then, um, we've set our chapter banquet and that is in March just to give us some, some lead time to, to get our name out there, um, and actually, with the connection to the Dawkins, Tom and Tina are going to be our speakers oh, at our first terrific. annual yeah. at our first right. annual banquet. So that's in March. Um, but our big thing right now is partnering with the Redland Art Center, the Watertown Convention and Visitors Bureau, as we try to strive to be the Cacklin Community <laughs> Award winner uh, this year in South Dakota. <laughs> nice. And so we will have a big tent uh, at at the Friday and Saturday morning of opening weekend. So we've you know got about ten days. And uh, we'll be handing out some prizes. We'll be doing a membership drive at that event and, and telling the and story. And where's the event at? It is at the intersection of Highway 212 and 81 in Watertown. There's a Cowboy Country gas oh, okay, station sure. and, and general store there. They so have all sorts of federal premium ammunition in that they store. Do. They do. You've been there. That's yes, the place they do. To stop. Yep, yep. So, and, and if there's Jakes out there listening to the podcast <laughs> that live in the Watertown area and want to get involved in the chapter, you talked about at a restaurant on the uh, yep so we meet every third tuesday of the month third at, tuesday at minerva's restaurant okay minerva's restaurant and that's bar. connected to the, the event center ramcota right yep 
Yep, and right now our our banquet is planned to be at that event center in March. Okay. Um, they've been very generous. And, and what time, if somebody wanted to just If they want to come to a meeting, yeah. uh, it's, like I said, every third Tuesday at Minerva's at 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock. Yeah. Okay. Look for Jake wearing the uh, Minnesota Wild. Wild, uh, <laughs> yeah. Pheasants for Blaze Orange. Yeah, this never is not my favorite hat, hunt. No. No, I can't. <laughs> I, I actually have a second in the closet in case I ever lost this one. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so. And, and since Erica, this this chapter sort of the the catalyst was this podcast a year ago, yeah, which is pretty awesome. If there's other folks listening in the state of South Dakota, where um, where else do you want to try to start chapters that we might have holes uh, in communities? Absolutely. So we're incredibly lucky here in the state. I mean, Watertown when I started was like the community. That it's like we need to have a chapter here and Jake has helped us check that off. Um, we have really good coverage across the state. Um, but I would say, you know, no matter anyone who wants to get involved that wants to make a difference for habitat, public access, hunting, any of those things, getting people outside, we would love to have your help in one of our current chapters or just reach out to me. We can start a chapter anywhere. And how, how do they reach out to you? So email eyost, E-Y-O-S-T, at pheasantsforever.org they can give me a call on my cell phone yeah and both you and jake are super active on instagram you, <laughs> you post awesome <laughs> photos jake throw out your instagram um, handle you know it, it's kind of fun uh I, did you catch this on instagram it's at the real r-e-e-l jake hansen <laughs> hansen with an o so the real jake hansen <laughs> I, don't, I, thought was, I thought it was so creative when yeah. I made that up. There's a lot but of imposters out there, obviously. There is, right. so you have to have E-E-L like you're fishing. So the real Jake Hansen with an O on the Hansen. Yeah. Perfect. And you can see photos of Jep. You can see a lot of photos of yeah. Jep on yes. there in all of our adventures, whether it's Boundary Waters or whether it's uh, in the Wisconsin woods. Um, yeah, so we're we're an active family. Awesome. So, yeah. Erica, you got one of the best feeds. You got two feeds. For the organization, your personal one, and then the Pheasants Forever in South Dakota. What are those? So SD Pheasants Forever is going to be South Dakota Pheasants Forever. You can see all the great work our biologists are doing, the work our chapter's doing, what we're doing as an organization. Would love if you'd follow us on all of them, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And then my personal would be Erica K. Yost. And I think it was real recently you posted on the South Dakota Pheasants Forever Instagram about the county-by-county crp expirations coming up and it's it's pretty alarming how many acres are going to expire in the the coming year over 182,000 acres are going to expire in 2020 a lot big chunk of acres so folks out there we got a new farm bill at the end of 2018 we are hoping very soon to have an announcement about a crp general sign up because the last time there was a crp general sign up only two landowners in the entirety of the state of South Dakota offered acres that were accepted. 101 total acres in the entirety of South Dakota were accepted the last CRP general sign-up. So really critical that, A, we get the U.S. Department of Agriculture to announce a new general sign-up, and then, B, for us to, to get the word out when that announcement comes that landowners in South Dakota, um, that we, we've got an opportunity for you. We're hoping that it comes before the end of the year. And um, 
uh, there's some new p elements in place that should help open things up for South Dakota. One of them being in the new farm bill, there's targeted acres for South Dakota CRP, uh, for CRP sign-up to get that number back closer towards 1.5 million acres of CRP in the state. Anything I missed there, guys? I would say just even though we don't know everything that will happen, you know, with the programs in the future is, you know, start planning with our biologists now. They're going to, you know, be able to advise you on what's available now, what they're hearing of what's coming in the future, and it it's only going to help to start that planning process now and reach out to our biologists. Great point. Yep. So you can find our biologists in South Dakota. Go to pheasantsforever.org and look under the Habitat tab, and you'll find Farm Bill Biologist Map, and you can see all of them. How many how many biologists do we have in South Dakota now? It's We're up to 18 in the state. Wow. Um, we have pretty good coverage. We just um, added one out in Face, South Dakota, so we're, even, we're getting out west more and more. Um, yeah, we have the most of the state covered, and if... I'd always encourage people sometimes to look at those maps and they say, well, there's not somebody in my community. Find that closest one. We will travel to you. Yeah, we'll um, find. We're going to make sure to cover you. If you're interested in doing habitat work, we're going to find you um, and, and help you out. That's what we want to do. Any any CRP programs currently open and available for folks to sign up? I, I know there's a funding um, desire to fi finish the James River crap. That's not currently available. Um, any other practices that might be open right at this moment? Um, for CRP, there's not. Um, like we keep, you know, hearing we're going to get a general sign up pretty soon, um, and that, you know, Erica's post was just a tint, just mm -hmm. a taste of what we're going to do. We're going to make an all-out push yeah. on that. Um, but there is, you know, other programs out there like Equip, the Environmental Quality Incentive Program, um, the Conservation Stewardship Program. They're taking applications right now. Um, and those are other programs, you know, we talk a lot about CRP, but mm -hmm. there's other programs out there. Um, that's another reason to contact our biologists now. Right. Um, they're well-versed, whether it's a USDA program, a Fish and Wildlife Service program. Um, the state of South Dakota just launched a second century program. Um, Governor Noem took that on. Um, there's some money available. There's about a million dollars available to do habitat work um, on land right now. That's a little shorter contract than CRP, but it's very close to CRP. It, saline soils fall into that or is that yep. a, Okay. Yep. So saline soils program, just explain that real quickly. Yep. So that's a partnership that Pheasants Forever, we launched a couple of years ago with South Dakota corn growers. Um, that's focused in on saline soils, which are these, you go out, you drive through the state, you see white spots out in fields that totally devoid of vegetation. There's nothing on it. Can't grow soybeans, can't grow corn. Um, we provided a, a small payment, $150 an acre, and gave them free seed um, in order to go plant those back to perennial vegetation because that's what those sites actually need to get better. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a case of water usage um, is out of whack, water cycling is out of whack. So we partnered up with South Dakota Corn Growers, which has been a phenomenal partnership for us um, to provide this for landowners. Um, and since then, you know, the, the governor stepped up with a million dollars and launched a second century program. And We've taken a part of that and folded it into the Second Century program. We're still doing our thing, but um, you know, with that program out there, we're we're helping them too along with it. And that's one of the things that can get you qualified for that program is saline soils. Um, it's a great program, um, very flexible for landowners, but it's providing awesome pheasant habitat at the same time. And if folks out there maybe live in one of those communities we talked about with the community habitat. Um, coalitions mm -hmm. they can also talk to the farm bill biologists to learn more about those programs too right definitely definitely and more than likely if you're working with those farm bill biologists you're going to hear about it um, they're actively pushing you know that and the walk and access program um, that's another great program offered by the state of south dakota um, we have about 1.4 million acres in the state that are open that are public land that are open to 
you know, or their private land that are open for public hunting. 1.4 million acres. Yep, wow. and we have a long-term goal of getting to 2 million acres mm. within the next five years. Um, I just recently talked with the Secretary of Game and Fish, Secretary Hepler. Um, they're still pushing that goal hard, and they're, they're really determined to get to 2 million acres. Awesome. All right, as we, we wrap up this episode, I want to get a uh, tip from each of you. Jake, you're included, but you get to go last because I'm surprising you on this. Um, <laughs> a tip for you know folks listening, they want to come to the pheasant capital of the country. Outside of opening weekend, what, what advice would you offer folks that uh, you know, maybe they use that first five days for the opener because there's all the traditions and the fun around the opener. When are they? When should they use that second five? And what would you tell them to keep in mind when they're using those that second five days of their license? And we'll start with the seasoned veteran the seasoned Matt vet. Morlock, state coordinator for South Dakota. I would say wait till as long as you can. You look at those forecasts, and when it gets to that point where you're not sure if you can handle it because <laughs> it's going to be that cold, mm-hmm. get out there that day. Um, I just I. I think we've talked before on this podcast and stuff. I don't get geared up really hard for pheasant hunting until about Thanksgiving. Um, and then it just gets better as that year goes on. The best days I have are usually that last week. Um, so I would say, you know, watch watch the weather. Come out as late as you think you can handle it. Um, put on a pair of long johns. And it just, it's it's just, it's a whole different hunt than early in the year. Um, and it's just, I love it. I mean, there's been times where I've been known to strap snowshoes on. Um, just to get out there in the middle of that, that deep, thick stuff and hunt those cattail sloughs. The birds are congregated. You're going to see massive flushes. Hmm. Um, the other tip with that is you see all those big flushes at the end and you want to race up to them, slow down and take your time. Those aren't the birds you're hunting. Yeah. You, you know, it's fun to watch and fun to see, but then you're going to run past a whole bunch of birds that are holding tight. So uh, um, circling back on something that you guys both said about early season it's been so wet right it, and it's still wet it's do folks need to be bringing rubber boots to hunt <laughs> opener this year uh, yeah i mean it's gonna be muddy and wet it's right? gonna be muddy and wet um there yeah i'd say rubber boots something water at least get get some mink oil in your boots right okay. now it, it's and i'd say even go as far to check to see if some of the roads are open for the places mm-hmm. that you generally access because we've got just a lot of water out on the landscape some of those roads are going to be closed so yep. check on that in advance yep that's 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 a great point eric um you know i was talking to a farmer friend of both of ours um eric johansson yesterday and they have fields that are a mile they can see from their barn mm-hmm. and it's an eight and a half mile trek to get to them because you have to no go around kidding. there's so many roads closed in that area wow. um and that's also you know, when you're out talking with landowners, especially, you know, asking for permission stuff, be mindful. They're stressed out right now, so let's... It's been a tough year. It's been a tough year on them. Um, they're battling wet fields and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's a reason we're in need rubber boots, mm-hmm. um, but they're fighting that with their livelihood, so just be, you know, extra nice to them. Um, know that they're they're stressed out right now. Yeah, one thing that sometimes occurs um, early season is you you come to some historical spots and because of a drought or whatever, there's an emergency haying, grazing. That's not the case this year. They're, you're not going to show up at a spot and have it be grazed or hayed down because it's been so wet. So much cover. It, yeah. You might show up and you can't get to your spot because the roads are just a snotty, gnarled <laughs> gumbo. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, it is. No, yeah. It, and so, like you said earlier, Erica, some of those places are – I guess you mentioned it at the uh, Terry Redland GPA. Uh, the road is flooded, yep. right? You can't even get back to some of these places. There's a lot of areas that have gotten 300% above normal moisture. Hmm. Um, 
I'd say almost all of our state is well over 100% of moisture already with mm. months to go. Um, but a lot of places are in that 300 range, so it's it's just wet. Hmm. All right, Erica, what's your uh, what's your big tip for for the remainder of the season? Yeah, I kind of revel in the late season. The early season goes pretty quick for me. I have a lot of fun going to all our banquets, meeting a lot of our volunteers and anyone who comes to a banquet. So I kind of revel in that last little bit. Um, kind of what you alluded to earlier is find the cattails, kick the cattails. It's some of the best dog work you can have is mm. when you've got a little bit of snow on the ground it's cold out there kick the cattails good advice yeah <laughs> folks have heard it from us before cattails yeah. thermal cover you get that first snow and it is the place to be and and yep. like you said when you mm-hmm. south dakota is so unique because of the potential for that epic flush right. you know and uh, epic flush give me a number when you say epic flush as a south dakotan oh gosh number of birds it's not uncommon to get in the right area where you're going to have a couple hundred birds get up in front of you. A um, couple hundred <laughs> wild birds. <laughs> yep. Right? No, it's, it, it, you'll see that. They just snowball. You see them rolling and rolling in front of you, and it's you catch yourself just stopping sometimes and just watching. Watch it. It, it can yeah. be. So w- the thing that I would add on for listeners, uh, when you think about South Dakota, you do sen- tend to think about a big group party hunt, Right. You absolutely should think about South Dakota as a one gal, one guy, right? One person in your dog and be really, really quiet. You know, leave the bell at home, leave the beeper at home, yes. and hunt those those cattail sloughs that Erica mentioned, but just be <laughs> quiet, right? Because yep. The epic flushes are when you're too loud. Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. Yep. Yep. Usually, if, if a, especially late in the year, if, if I'm out hunting with somebody and they get out and have that bell on the collar, I'm saying, you go that way. I'm going to go this way. Yeah. And kind of thinking that, that that's going to move some birds my way. Um, right. You can't. Late late in the year, you got to be really quiet when you're out there. And it's not a bad idea. Even if you're in a group of five, break up into smaller groups from there and, and hunt in coordination but not together. It's kind of little another little tip for you. All right, our our volunteer. We can, well, first of all, we can't thank you enough for starting the chapter here mm-hmm. in Watertown. It's it's unbelievable that you know a Pheasants Forever organization, thirty plus years, didn't have a chapter in Watertown. Right. So, right. Jake, um, you know, thank you very much, and to all the chapter volunteers that have joined us yeah. uh, at the podcast. Thanks for starting up this chapter. It makes a huge difference to have a local community it absolutely support. does and you know what it the story that we we're telling people the truthful story is that it's not just for pheasant hunters right you know uh, having a chapter here benefits everybody you know the the local farmers uh, um our whole our whole mission with our chapter is education and teaching people about the importance of habitat and and just like aberdeen just like mitchell um businesses in watertown are quickly getting on board to say you know what if we get some more public accessible acres um, available to people in this community and get people here boy it, it also helps our local economy it helps it helps every business owner here and it's uh it's it's remarkable um just the number of people that have come out of the woodwork that have said okay we're on board so yep. but most importantly yes i get the last thought you, for my five days you do part. okay <laughs> um i was i was gonna share uh, I just wrote a column in a local newspaper about this. That last hunt is the second to last day of the season with snow on the ground. And uh, I didn't trust my dog. 
Mm-hmm. He kept going back and forth over this snow pile, and I was like, there's nothing here. And all of a sudden, boom, the last rooster of our season flushed out of that uh, snowbank. And so I, I learned two lessons that day. It, it, even if it's cold and snow is up to your waist, uh, that could be the best pheasant hunting you could find, but also always trust your dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I better switch it up because you guys both said late season. So I'm, I'll go a different route, and I'll say pick the uh your five days over a time where you could bring either uh, a new friend out with you or, or one of your kids um so i'm gonna say use a holiday mm-hmm. and uh and plan that five days over the holiday where you know you can take your kids or you could take your best friend yeah. take your best friend's kids i don't know but bring somebody out there that to teach them and they they can be adults too yeah, yeah. That's a that's a great point um mea weekend so that that weekend in minnesota where uh, kids are out of school for an extra couple of days a lot of folks come to south dakota then a lot of folks come the weekend after thanksgiving yep. right that's a that probably the busiest time outside of opener i would probably guess mm-hmm. and then the the dirty little secret within pheasants forever and you guys know this when do most pheasants forever employees come to south dakota and go hunting <laughs> It's the week between Christmas and New Year's, yep. right? <laughs> I mean, it, when they take it the is. vacation, and they're like, okay, we get X number of days off automatically because of the holidays. I fulfill my family commitments, and then I'm just going to zip across to up north, southeast, west to South Dakota. Yep. And that late season, it taps into the late season. It taps into your holiday component mm-hmm. and taps into your, your cattail hunting, and boom. It's it's the place that a ton of Pheasants Forever employees circle on the map and circle on their calendar to come mm-hmm. here. All right, folks. Um, for Julie Ranham with the Redland Art Center, for Matt Morlock, Erica Yost, and our new chapter president here in Watertown, Jake Hansen, thank you very much for joining this episode of On the Wing Podcast. We will invite you out to the Redland Arts Center one more time. I'll mention again, it is free admission. And if you bring a coupon you can get at any Watertown area hotel and your South Dakota pheasant hunting license, they will give you for free a print of Country Road. Uh, uh, original piece of artwork by the Terry Redlin, a guy that uh, has left an unbelievably lasting legacy, not only in the art community, but on the landscape. And for that, uh, we at Pheasants Forever and all of us as hunters, as conservationists, are in a debt of gratitude. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of On the Wing Podcast. I am Bob St. Pierre, and I really sincerely appreciate you listening. Please give us a review and subscribe to On the Wing Podcast. And if you're not yet a Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever member, check us out at pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. We need you. The birds need you. The dogs need you. Public lands need you. Get involved. There's no time like the present. Do what Jake did. (laughs) Contact one of our reps. Start a chapter. Everybody should be a little bit more like Jake Hansen. (laughs) And with with that, thanks very much for listening. And uh, we'll see you somewhere in South Dakota very soon.